welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. We're deep into Chicago winter, which means fun temperature fluctuations, a lot of wind, and I am deep into my master's thesis, which means fun mood fluctuations, and a lot of tears. But enough about me. Let's talk about the subject of today's study guide, Cecily Neville. You almost certainly did not learn about Cecily Neville in your average history class because she lives in that awkward, cuspy time period between the Renaissance and the Tudors that high school history teachers usually don't like to acknowledge. Also, due to the fact that she was a woman during the Renaissance and never actually was a queen, there's not a whole lot of information about her interior life, which makes it hard for your average teacher or professor to make her come alive in a really interesting way. That being said, I do think it is important to discuss Cecily Neville, especially in terms of the series about the women of the War of the Roses, because one, she was super caught up in the War of the Roses, and two, she's basically the grandmother of the modern English royal family, because the York and Tudor dynasties are descended from her, and because every member of the royal family from their onwards is descended from her. Cecily Neville's study guide involves a totally normal age to get married, a lot of wine, four different kings, and a possible love child. Let's begin. Cecily Neville was born May 3rd, 1415 in Rabbi Castle in Durham. Her parents are Ralph Neville, the Earl of Westmoreland, and Joan Beaufort. Her father came from the Neville clan, who had been English nobles since the Norman Conquest. Before the Norman Conquest, they had been living in France and got their name originally from the French village they had come from, Cal de Nouvelle. The Neville family had been living in the Durham area of England since the 1170s, which means by the 1400s, they are really well-established within the English nobility. Ralph Neville specifically had served in France during the Hundred Years' War, which I talked about in last week's episode about Catherine Swineford. He had done a good job during the war and then helped Henry IV overthrow Richard II. Cecily's mother, Joan, was the daughter of Catherine Swineford and John of Gaunt, the third son of Edward III. Catherine and John weren't married when Joan was born, but she and the rest of her Beaufort siblings were later legitimized, which means that she and her subsequent children may or may not have a claim to the throne of England. Cecily is the youngest of her parents' 14 children, which is a crazy number of children to have, in my opinion. However, because we are in the 1400s, only nine of the 14 Neville children actually survive childhood. Also, both Ralph and Joan had been married previously, and from these earlier marriages, the two had 10 
other children, which means technically Cecily was the youngest of 24 children. The fact that the Nevilles have a massive family is a nice foreshadowing for what Cecily's later family is going to look like. Because Cecily is the youngest in the family, by the time she's born, all of her older half-sisters and two of her full sisters are already married. Soon after her birth, her father, Ralph Neville, leaves England. When she is born, King Henry V had only been king of England for a very short amount of time, and he really wants to do an excellent job being king of England, which means doing an excellent job beating the French in the Hundred Years' War. However, while France is the top priority, there's some other military entanglements he gets caught up in. One of those is in Scotland, and that's where Ralph Neville is going to be. He's going to be pushing back an attempted Scottish invasion, and he's going to do an excellent job at that. While Ralph Neville is off fighting in Scotland, Henry V is going to have the victory he is most famous for in October 1415 with the Battle of Agincourt. This is a huge deal in English military history, but the Battle of Agincourt is also going to have a massive effect in Cecily Neville's life. During the fighting at Agincourt, Edward, the Duke of York, who is the highest-ranked English noble and one of Edward III's legitimate grandchildren, dies. Edward, the Duke of York's heir, was his nephew, a four-year-old orphan named Richard Plantagenet, who is now the new Duke of York. After some intercourt drama, Cecily's father, Ralph Neville, ends up becoming Richard Plantagenet's ward. While all this is going on, Cecily Neville is growing up at the family home of Rabbi. We don't know all that much about Cecily's childhood because, remember, she's a girl growing up in the Renaissance, so we aren't going to have that much information. And to make matters worse, she is the youngest girl in a massive family growing up in the Renaissance, so double why would care. But we do know that she is brought up extremely well. The Neville family is very wealthy, so she has a lot of servants, a lot of governesses, good food, nice clothes, etc., etc. Cecily is almost certainly well-educated. She knew how to read and write French, probably. She almost certainly was literate because Joan Beaufort had all sorts of connections to various writers, including to the well-known English mystic Marjorie Kemp, who was the first person in England to write their own autobiography. And later on in life, Cecily Neville would be a literary patron in her own right, which really does suggest that she was a big reader. Then, in 1420, Cecily's oldest brother gets married to an heiress, Earl Alice Montague, who is the daughter of the Earl of Salisbury. Alice will end up giving birth to a son, Richard the Earl of Warwick, who will be super important later on in Cecily's life. 
Alice will also give birth to a daughter, Joan, who will marry James I of Scotland. So within all this, we're seeing all of these different interconnections between Cecily and other high-ranking people within England and abroad. Two years later, in 1422, Henry V of England dies and is replaced by his infant son, Henry VI. The next year, Ralph Neville's ward, Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York, who, as we've established, is one of the highest-ranking nobles in England, even though he is still a child, moves to the Neville home of Rabbi. And this is really when Cecily Neville's life starts changing. The next year, when Cecily is nine years old, she and Richard become betrothed. Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York, is doubly related to the current ruling English family. His mother was descended from John of Gaunt's older brother, Edward III's second son, Lionel of Antwerp, and his father was descended from John of Gaunt's younger brother, Edward III's fourth son, Edmund I, Duke of York. This means that he has a really strong claim to the throne of England. Richard Plantagenet is four years older than Cecily Neville, and the two are raised together and, according to all the sources, become fairly close. A year after they become engaged, in 1425, Cecily and Richard are sent to London to live at the royal court. This happens because Ralph Neville dies and Joan, his wife, inherits his land. Suddenly, Joan Beaufort has a ton of land and is really closely related to the throne in her own right. Remember, she is descended from John of Gaunt, Edward III's third son. Her descendancy from Edward III is almost as good as the current king's relation to the throne. Because of this, for social reasons, the entire Neville family that isn't currently married moves to the English court in London, which of course includes Cecily and her fiancé, Richard Plantagenet. This is super exciting for Cecily, who's only 10, and now gets to be part of the very exciting London social scene, which includes a lot of jousts and parties and some not-so-fun political tensions because Henry VI is still very young and still has a regency, which is causing some tension at court. Cecily Neville ends up marrying Richard Plantagenet in October 1429. At the time of the wedding, she is 14 and Richard is 18. Because they get married in 1429, this means that they had a relatively long engagement for the time period. The reason for this long engagement is because they had to wait for both of them to be old enough to consent to the marriage. In the 1400s, for noble people, consent was 14 because welcome to the Middle Ages. 14-year-olds are definitely old enough to consent to marriage and sex. That's definitely not creepy at all. However, because of this rather long engagement, 
Richard and Cecily actually were able to get to know each other, become close, and as a result, genuinely did seem to love each other according to their contemporaries. As far as we know, Richard did not have any mistresses, which was exceedingly rare for the time period, and they did not repudiate their engagement later on in life, which for the time period was a sign of a strong relationship. At the time of their wedding, Cecily Neville was known for being a blonde beauty. While we don't know exactly what she looked like, according to her contemporaries, she and her cousin Joan, who was the Queen of Scotland, looked a lot looked a lot alike, and according to contemporaries, Joan was a blonde beauty, so ergo Cecily Neville also was a blonde beauty. A month after their marriage, in November 1429, Henry VI was officially crowned King of England. He no longer needed a regency. Henry VI's official coronation was almost certainly the first court event that Cecily and Richard attended together as a married couple. Soon after Henry's coronation, he and Richard went to France together, while Cecily stayed behind in England with her mother because she was still young and probably wouldn't have been invited to travel with the king. A few years later, in 1431, Richard returned to England and by that time was old enough to get full control of his to get full control of his estates, which was a lot of land. Remember, Richard is the Duke of York. He is the highest rank nobleman in England. He theoretically has quite a bit of power. Now that Richard has full control of his lands and his estates, he and Cecily set up a bit of a base of operations at Fotheringhay Castle, which is where the two will operate out for the next few years, although they will spend quite a bit of time moving between their various estates in England and Wales. For the next few years, Cecily's life will mostly be based on maintaining the various Plantagenet estates and being a good medieval wife, which means doing whatever her husband asks and starting to pop out children. However, the popping out children was a little bit easier said than done. It wasn't until 1438, nine years after she and Richard got married, that Cecily gave birth to her first child, a girl named Joan who died in infancy. Because of the gap between marriage and the first child, everyone was worried that Cecily maybe wasn't fertile because all of her sisters and all of her mothers had had so many children right after getting married. However, their fears were misplaced. Cecily Neville ended up having 12 more children, five of whom did tragically die young because, once again, welcome to the 1400s. However, the seven surviving children were Anne, who was born in 1439, the same year that Cecily's mother, Joan, died, Edward, who was born in 1442, Edmund, who was born in 1443, Elizabeth, 
who was born in 1444, Margaret, who was born in 1446, George, who was born in 1449, and the final child, Richard, who was born in 1452. Two of Cecily's children, Edward and Richard, would end up being kings of England. And most modern scholars think that the reason for the gap between getting married and having children might have been because Cecily and Richard were waiting to get pregnant because having a pregnant 14-year-old is maybe not the best state of affairs, or possibly she had gotten pregnant before those nine years, but just had a series of like early miscarriages. We don't know, but most scholars don't think it was like some weird health issues. Anyways, while Cecily was busy having 12 children, which, oh my goodness, that is a lot of children, she was continuing to move around because Richard was serving in various governmental positions for the English court. Between 1438 and about 1452, Cecily spent time between England, France, and Ireland. In that time period, Richard Plantagenet would serve as governor of France twice and would also be the king's lieutenant in Ireland. So it wasn't like Cecily was just lying back, popping out babies in some beautiful castle. No, she was busy. She was moving around. And also, within this time period, she was serving as a literary patron for several writers. She was a very active woman who was not just staying in one place. Sadly, we don't have that many details of exactly what she was doing and what she was thinking about all this because, once again, Middle Ages, why would we keep track of what a woman was doing or thinking? But we do know that she was a very active woman. By the time of her final child, Richard's birth, tensions were starting to pop up in the English court, which means that it is time for me to attempt to explain the War of the Roses. Oh yay, what joy. Before I really dive in to this honestly pretty surface level explanation of the War of the Roses, I just want to note that I'm not really going to be discussing the military history side of things or deep diving into any specific battles because that's not really what I do on this podcast. This is not a military history podcast. I'm not that interested in military history. I'm more interested in like the gossipy drama side of history. So sorry if that's what you're looking for. Anyways, War of the Roses. Basically, we have three main families fighting in the War of the Roses. And what do you look at that? All three of these families, coincidentally, are descended from John of Gaunt. In terms of seniority and the strength of the claims of each family, we have the Lancasters, the Yorks, and at the very end, the Tudors. The Tudors aren't really going to be playing that much of a role in today's episode, but they are important, so I am going to mention them. So first up, the Lancasters. The Lancasters are descended from John of Gaunt and his first wife, 
Blanche of Lancaster, which is how they get their name. They include Henry IV, Henry V, and most importantly in today's episode, Henry VI. Then we have the Yorks, who are descended doubly from Edward III. On the one hand, they have a claim through their mother, Joan Beaufort, who was the illegitimate daughter of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swineford, and then they are and then they have a claim through their father, Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York, hence Yorks, who had a double claim through his mother and father, who both were descended from Edward III. And then lastly, we have the Tudors, who are going to claim the throne through John Beaufort, who was an illegitimate child of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swineford. But we're going to get more into the Tudors in a subsequent episode. Basically, things at the English royal court really start going downhill around 1453, although tensions at the English court had existed much before then, thanks to Henry VI becoming king as an infant. Because of this, there had been a regency, so the English court had been very divided and very messy for quite a long time. Then, in August 1453, Henry VI suffers a pretty severe mental breakdown and basically goes insane. He most likely had inherited these mental problems from his grandfather, Charles VI of France, via his mother, Catherine of Valois, and as a result, can no longer rule on his own. So suddenly the court is plunged into anarchy. A few months later, in October 1453, his wife, Margaret of Anjou, gives birth to a son. And that means there's an heir. So maybe the whole situation will get figured out. However, there are a ton of questions about the baby's paternity. And Henry VI suggests that he might not be the baby's father. So the drama and anarchy at court continues. By 1454, Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York, and Cecily Neville's husband becomes protector of the realm, aka regent during Henry's insanity, and Cecily Neville returns back to the English court in London. Richard got the position because of his really strong blood connection to the royal family. Remember, he did have a double claim to the throne, both through his mother and his father, and because he'd been working for the English government in various positions since the 1430s. And then some people in the royal court start to suggest that Richard may actually have a better claim to the English throne than Henry, because his claim is through an older son of Edward III. Remember, John of Gaunt was only the third son of Edward III, whereas Richard Plantagenet's mother was descended from a second son of Edward III. But that claim is through the matrimonial line, which just adds to the confusion. Pretty soon, the English royal court 
which was already super divided from the power struggles dating from Henry VI's childhood, is even more divided. It's basically split between backers of Henry's wife, Margaret of Anjou, and backers of Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York, and his main supporter, Cecily Neville's cousin, Richard Earl of Warwick. Richard also has the support of most of Cecily's brothers, which means that almost all of the major northern English landowners are supporting Richard and Cecily over the Queen and, theoretically, the King. By 1455, Henry VI is starting to recover, which means that Margaret of Anjou tries to push Richard and Cecily out of political power. In order to defend himself, Richard raises an army and ends up beating the official royal army at the Battle of St. Albans in May 1455. This battle is seen as the start of the War of the Roses, even though at the time Richard Plantagenet probably had no plans to actually overthrow Henry VI. He probably just wanted to keep Margaret of Anjou out of power because, ew, having a woman running things, that's despicable. Richard's attempt to keep Margaret out of the picture worked. After the battle, we do have a political truce between Richard and Margaret for four years. Richard returns to being protector of the realm, and the status quo resumes. But then, in 1459, Margaret of Anjou goads Richard into another battle, and this time, things don't go quite so well. Richard's forces are completely scattered, and he flees into Ireland after a double defeat at the Battle of Borheath and the Battle of Ludford Bridge. Cecily is alone in England with her younger children because her oldest son, Edward, flees to France for his safety, and her next eldest son, Edmund, flees to Ireland with Richard. Even though Cecily is alone in England with her young children, Things go shockingly well for her. Cecily ends up successfully defending herself in front of a very pro-Margaret parliament. Yes, most of her lands get confiscated, but Cecily manages to convince Margaret to give her an annual stipend, so it's not like the Neville York family is going to be starving to death on the streets. However, there is a downside in Cecily's story. And before I continue, I just want to give a quick little content warning for sexual assault. Cecily and her children are forced to stay in royal custody in Maxstoke Castle. And during this time in custody, Cecily was probably sexually assaulted by some royal soldiers. However, this time in custody doesn't last all that long. In July 1460, the Earl of Warwick, Cecily's younger cousin, led an army against Margaret of Anjou and won in the Battle of Northampton. During the battle, Warwick managed to capture Henry VI, which meant that Richard Plantagenet was able to return from exile. Finally, he and Cecily were able to reunite, and after the battle and his return from exile, Richard started to kind of act like 
he was king of England. He started to carry the king's sword, and people started to act like, yeah, maybe he was in charge of England. Richard began to negotiate with Henry and said that, yeah, once you're dead, I'm going to be king of England, not Henry's son. This meant that suddenly Cecily Neville was the second-ranking woman in all of England after Margaret of Anjou. Not too shabby. But sadly for Cecily Neville, this happy state of affairs wasn't going to last all that long because Margaret of Anjou wasn't going to have her son usurped in the line of succession without a fight. Margaret quickly got Scottish support and launched a successful surprise attack against Richard Plantagenet and his army at the Battle of Wakefield. During the battle, Richard and his second oldest son, Edmund, were killed. Edmund was killed while he was literally begging for his life. After the battle, Margaret cut off the heads of Richard and Edmund and stuck them on spikes outside the city of York as a warning. As an extra little screw you, she had Richard of York's head wear a paper crown, which is an extra level of yikes that I'm sure George R.R. R. Martin took lots of inspiration from. As soon as Cecily heard the news about the shit show that was the Battle of Wakefield, she immediately sent her two youngest sons, Clarence and Richard, to Burgundy for their safety. She then went to London, which became the center of Yorkist forces, while York, weirdly enough, became the center of Lancaster forces. Cecily set things up so that Margaret and the Lancasters would have to attack the capital city of England in order to win the war, which would make them look extremely bad and very unpopular. And this gambit of Cecily's worked. Margaret and the Lancasters did not want to have to attack London, so they paused their advance and never quite recovered from this pause. And this gambit of Cecily, in my opinion, showed that she was pretty good at military strategy. By February 1461, Cecily's oldest son, Edward, with help from the Earl of Warwick, defeated Margaret's forces in the Battle of Taunton, and Margaret, fleed to, and Margaret fled to Scotland. Edward was crowned King Edward IV of England, and Henry VI was locked up in the Tower of London. So, yes, theoretically, we do have two kings of England, but it's totally chill. Things were stable enough that Cecily had the rest of her children come back to England, and she moved into the official queen's quarters and added the royal crest to her coat of arms. Basically, Cecily was saying she's the queen now. Edward also gave her a ton of land and money as the queen's mother. As queen mother, she was the top woman in England because Edward wasn't married yet. She had a ton of influence at court and she used this influence as a religious patroness. She also was in charge of managing the family estate for her youngest children. Basically, Cecily was on top of her game. 
However, she was unable to remarry because remarrying might destabilize Edward's claim to the throne, which put her in the minority. Most other war widows around her age, which was 46 at the time, did remarry, but not Cecily. However, as good as things were, they once again started falling apart. Remember, Edward only really became king with the help of Cecily's cousin, the Earl of Warwick. And as a result, Warwick did expect certain things, aka that Edward would do whatever he wanted. He tried to set up a marriage between Edward and a European princess. But it turned out that Edward had married a young woman, Elizabeth Woodville, in secret, which threw off all of Warwick's plans and made him very unhappy. However, even though Edward was married and Elizabeth technically had precedent over Cecily, Edward did allow Cecily to keep her old traditional quarters and just built new and possibly inferior ones for Elizabeth, which probably was the way to go because Cecily was not going to give up her beautiful bedrooms. After Edward married Elizabeth Woodville, Warwick was really pissed that he had not been consulted and ended up switching his alliance over to Margaret of Anjou and her son. He also engaged his daughters to Cecily's second surviving son, George of Clarence, and Margaret's son, Edward, who technically was the Prince of Wales and technically should have been King of England. He also started to spread the rumor that Cecily had been unfaithful to her husband, Richard Plantagenet, and that Edward, maybe, was the secret love child of Cecily and this random archer named Leyborne during Cecily's time in France. This rumor has persisted. In fact, in 2002, a historian suggested that it might be true. After all, her husband wasn't in town during the days that Edward most likely was conceived. However, that's only a guesstimate because Edward could have been slightly premature or slightly late, and the theory that Richard Plantagenet wasn't in town during the conception of Edward is based on the slightly faulty timing that like every baby is born at 40 weeks station. So that's to say we don't actually know if Edward IV was legitimate or not. It's unclear what role Cecily played in this spreading rumor that Edward wasn't actually legitimate. She definitely wasn't a fan of Elizabeth Woodville and Edward being married, and she possibly wanted to replace Edward, who was getting extremely difficult to control, with her more passive and pliable son, George of Clarence. She may have spread these rumors about Edward being non-legitimate herself, because she almost certainly did do this later on. Either way, Warwick and Margaret of Anjou did invade England, and they did manage to get Henry VI back on the throne between 1470 and 1471. But Edward IV did manage to regain power, and during all of this, Cecily is laying extremely low and staying out of the court drama. She is not involved directly in any of the fighting. 
by 1471, Edward IV is firmly on the throne and will stay on it until his death. As a result of this, Cecily Neville is the mother of the king. She is going to have a huge amount of power and influence, but Edward's wife, Elizabeth Woodville, who I will be talking about in a later study guide, is also a very strong human, so we are going to see tension between the two, and Cecily Neville is going to content herself by having most of her influence be focused in more religious aspects of life. In 1478, Cecily pops back up because Edward and George of Clarence have a very major falling out. Edward could never quite trust his younger brother because George had so publicly taken Warwick's side during the whole Margaret of Anjou pushing him off of the throne debacle. As a result, Edward ends up having George executed for a treason. Cecily has to step in and convince him to not have his younger brother publicly executed. Instead, according to legend, George is drowned in a barrel of his favorite wine, which is quite a way to go. Then, on April 9th, 1483, Edward IV dies unexpectedly after getting sick while fishing. His son, Cecily's grandson, Edward V, becomes King of England. However, Edward V is still only a child, which means that Cecily's youngest son, Richard, becomes the regent. Soon after Richard becomes the regent, those pesky old rumors about Edward IV being a love child, which means that he's not legitimate, which means that Edward V isn't legitimate, soon start spreading. And they were most likely spread by Richard III, because almost immediately he takes Edward V and his younger brother into the Tower of London for their protection, and they never emerge. On July 6th, 1483, Richard becomes the infamous Richard III. He just had to ruin his mother's reputation to get there. Despite that, Cecily does have a very good relationship with Richard's wife, Anne Neville. The two are technically related. Anne is the daughter of Cecily's cousin, the Earl of Warwick, and the two were both super interested in various religious texts and liked to visit each other regularly. It is much less clear how Cecily felt about Richard deposing her grandson, even though she probably did help spread the Edward is a legitimate rumor. In August 1485, Richard III was deposed by Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth Field, which is something I promise I will get much more into in a later study guide. Henry Tudor ends up marrying Cecily's granddaughter, Elizabeth of York, in January 1586 and becomes King of England. As a result of this, Cecily is related by blood or marriage by one degree to four different kings within her lifetime, which is very impressive. Edward IV and Richard III were her sons, Edward V was her grandson, and Henry VII was married to her granddaughter. After Henry Tudor becomes Henry VII, Cecily basically withdraws from public life. She becomes super pious, spends most of her days praying, and literally goes to Mass five times a day. 
As a result of her very pious, very publicly religious image, she sort of redeems her reputation among the English public, who at that point weren't exactly loving her due to her connection to Richard III and all the stories swirling around her in terms of legitimacy and illegitimacy. Cecily Neville ends up dying on May 31st, 1495, which happened to be my birthday. Not that I was born in 1495, just that May 31st is my birthday, at the very respectable age of 80. At the time of her death, she had two living children, at least 14 living grandchildren, and at least four living great-grandchildren, including the future Henry VIII, which isn't too shabby. From Every English monarch from Henry VIII onwards is a direct descendant of Cecily Neville. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick little recap of Cecily Neville. Cecily Neville was born in 1415. Her parents were the very well-connected Ralph Neville, Earl of Westmoreland, and Joan Beaufort, the youngest daughter of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swineford. Because her father was John of Gaunt, Joan and her children may or may not have had a claim to the English throne. Cecily was the youngest of her parents' combined 24 children, which is a crazy number of children when you think about this. She grew up in relative wealth and privilege, most likely learned how to read and write, was literate, all that good stuff. When she was nine years old, her father's ward, Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York, who technically was the highest ranking English noble, came to live with the family and quickly became engaged to Cecily. However, the two would not get married until 1829, when Cecily was 14 years old. The fact that the two had such a long engagement for the time period meant that they actually got to know each other and, from all contemporary sources, had a very strong relationship. Pretty soon after the two got married, Henry VI officially was crowned king, which meant he no longer had a regency which was awesome, although the English royal court would still bear the scars and divisions of having a multi-year regency. For the next few years, Cecily and Richard would bounce between their many estates. Cecily would give birth to 12 children, although only seven would survive, while Richard would be serving in a multitude of English government positions in England, France, and Ireland. Everything would change, though, in 1453, when Henry VI, the then King of England, suffered a mental attack, went insane, and no longer could rule on his own. Due to Richard Plantagenet's stellar lineage and service for the English royal court, he became the protector of the realm, a.k.a. regent. However, Richard and Henry's wife, Margaret of Anjou, were not on the best of terms, and pretty soon, tension developed at court. Margaret of Anjou tried to overthrow Richard of York, kicking off the first battle of the War of the Roses. Hen Richard won this battle and managed to keep control for the next four years, 
But then, in 1459, Margaret goaded Richard into battle yet again, and this time she won. Richard had a fleet to Ireland, while Cecily stayed in England, mostly kept the family together, but, tragically, may have been sexually assaulted. The next year, in 1460, Richard, with the help of Cecily's cousin, the Earl of Warwick, who's also known as the Kingmaker, managed to come back to England and won a huge battle. This time, Richard managed to negotiate that after Henry died, he would get to be king. Margaret of Anjou was not thrilled about this, got some Scottish support, and defeated Richard in battle and killed Richard. Once again, Cecily and her family were not exactly in the best of situations. Cecily holed up in London. Margaret was unwilling to attack London, and suddenly Cecily had the upper hand. In February 1461, her oldest son, Edward, with the help of the Earl of Warwick, beat Margaret once and for all, and Edward became the King of England, Edward IV. Cecily was suddenly the highest-ranking woman in England. But Edward had a bit of a wild side. He married the unexpected Elizabeth Woodville, which kind of pissed everyone off. The Earl of Warwick double-crossed him, joined forces with Margaret of Anjou, tried to push Edward off the throne. Edward managed to cling to the throne, but in the process isolated himself from his brother, George of Clarence, which would cause some messiness, which ended up with George of Clarence drowning himself in a barrel of wine, which is kind of a story for another time. But Cecily Neville did, for the most part, manage to keep her grasp as queen mother. Edward IV would end up dying in April 1483. The throne should have gone to his son, Edward V, but then Cecily's youngest son, Richard III, that dastardly man, usurped the throne, most likely murdered his nephew, and then we have Shakespeare's Richard III, which is so historically accurate. Richard III was then overthrown by the random Henry Tudor, who then married Cecily's granddaughter, Elizabeth of York, which means that Cecily was related by either blood or marriage to four English kings within her lifetime. Cecily stuck around for a good portion of Henry VII's reign before dying at the age of 80 in May 1495. Not a bad track record. For this episode, most of my research came from Sarah Christwood's book, Blood Sisters, The Women Behind the Wars of the Roses, J.L. Lane Smith's book, Cecily, Duchess of York, and Amy License's book, Cecily Neville, Mother of Kings. As always, for a full bibliography and relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, or ideas for future episodes, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to financially support the podcast, you can be a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Um, for $5 a month, you get access to bi-weekly, every two-week tangent casts that cover a person, place, or a thing that didn't quite fit in to a full-length study guide. This week, 
the tangent cast is going to be on the tragic and scandalous Catherine of Valois, Henry V's wife. Next week, the norm the Normal Study Guide is going to be talking about Margaret of Anjou and her side of the War of the Roses. As always, if you want to reach out on social media, there is the Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod and the Instagram at SadGirlStudy. The best way to help the podcast grow is to call a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let me know how I'm doing rate or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!